Hey everyone, this is Liam McCollum again on what I have creatively named The Liam McCollum Show. And today I'm going to talk to Michael Meharry. He is the National Communications Director for the 10th Amendment Center and the Managing Editor of the Shift Gold website. He also hosts his own podcast, Thoughts from Meharry Head, as well as the Friday Gold Rap Podcast. He also hosts the Godarchy Podcast where he talks about religion and libertarian principles. So here he is. Hey Mike, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Good. How's Florida gone? Have you officially moved in? Yep, we're we're here trying to get settled. I guess we're pretty much settled. Well, that that's good to hear. Uh, first off, I, I I just wanted to thank you for coming on, but I also wanted to wish you a happy belated birthday again, and also congratulate you for releasing your book. And I kind of I did want to talk a little about that later on, but sure. Could you maybe just kind of I saw I saw on your Facebook bio that you consider yourself a voluntarist. Could you explain what your background is and kind of what you mean by that term? Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds of terms that get thrown around and, and nobody knows what anything means. So <laughs> I, I pick probably the vaguest one and, uh, and, and then I just try to explain it to people. Uh, because, you know, I mean, basically a lot of people would say, okay, I'm a, I'm a libertarian. And, you know, I, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. But, you know, there's a wide range of views on what libertarian is. Um, you know, some people, I think a lot of people, if you say that just in the general public, they're going to say, oh, you're, uh, you know, fiscally conservative and socially liberal. And I don't right. really think that's a very good definition of libertarian. Um, I could say I'm an anarchist because ultimately I do believe that, you know, every individual has – the right uh, of self-ownership, and from that flows the idea of, of basically self-governance, that we have the, the right to direct our own actions up until the point that they interfere with somebody else's uh, autonomy. But uh, I like voluntarist uh, as a descriptive term because basically what, what it's saying, what it means, is that I believe that all interactions should be voluntary, that there should be no force in, or coercion involved uh, in interactions between human beings. And, uh, you know, I think most people believe that at some level. And out of that kind of comes the idea of self-ownership, again, that, that we are autonomous individuals and, and we have a right uh, just by virtue of being human beings to direct our own actions. That's what ownership means. If you own something, you can direct what it does. And certainly most people would agree that you can direct yourself, you know. Um, and, you know, the non-aggression principle, the idea that uh, initiating a force or aggression against somebody is not ethically justified. It's ethical to use defensive force. If somebody attacks you or tries to take your property, you have a, a, a eth ethical justification to stop them by using force or violence. But you don't have any right to coerce somebody or force somebody to bend to your will uh, by the use of force and, and violence. So. Right. I mean, that's, that's in essence what it is. It's just voluntary interactions between individuals. And of course, a lot of things, there are a lot of ramifications from that and a lot of nuances of it. But mm -hmm. I think that's something most people can wrap their heads around. And I think really most people at some level uh, believe in that up until the point that they decide that there's something that you know somebody else needs to do that they should be able to make them do. Right. The government comes in, and that's where we have all kinds of problems. Yeah, um, and kind of just to tie that in uh, with what you do with the Tenth Amendment Center, could you could you kind of explain what they do and what their mission is, and um, your podcast, and what your mission yeah. is as a person? Yeah. So. This confuses people because a lot of people say, okay, well, you're, you say you're a, a voluntarist or an anarchist or a, 
anarcho-capitalist or whatever term you want to use, and yet you're involved with this organization. It's all about the Constitution, and that's statist. And that doesn't make yeah. any sense. And I kind of get that for, uh, on one level, but mm-hmm. there is a uh, there is a method to my madness. Uh, I believe very strongly that we need to present a philosophy that is that is very pure and and very plain and very consistent. And so, you know, when I talk about philosophy, uh, when I talk about ethics and morals, I, I try to be very consistent with that. But we also live in a real world. And uh, Murray Rothbard said that, uh, you know, it, it's it, it it's not enough to simply parrot ultimate principles. There has to be some type of pragmatic, workable thing uh, in the world that we live in. And the sad fact of the matter is, is that we have government and we have to deal with its intrusion upon our lives. And the Constitution, while flawed in many ways, and while I would argue is is really at its core, uh, no more valid than any other you know so-called social contract, mm-hmm. it is considered the law of the land. It's the way the government is supposed to run. So it provides a, a starting point. Place a stepping stone for us to say, okay, how can we make the the country a little bit more free? Well, certainly, the limited government structure that the Constitution was supposed to set up would be a step in the right direction. And since most Americans still have some regard for the Constitution, uh, it, it it's a good entry point, a good discussion point where uh, we can say, okay, maybe we can at least agree that having a monopoly government in Washington, D.C., directing the lives of 320 million people isn't the best way to order society. Maybe mm-hmm. it would be a little bit better to you know, at least have uh, 50 competing jurisdictions in the states with uh, a little bit more power and a little less power uh, in the central um, in the central government. Right. And so from a pragmatic standpoint, I really strongly believe in decentralization. Uh, I think monopolized government is the biggest threat to liberty. Centralized power is the gravest threat to liberty because it's more difficult to confront. Uh, it becomes more entrenched and it's just bigger and stronger when it's centralized in one place. So that if we can have uh, more autonomy at the state level, not that state governments are good, state governments suck just as bad as uh, <laughs> as the federal government, but they compete with each other. And as individuals, we have a little bit more control at the state and local level. And I've found this in the work that I've done with the 10th Amendment Center over the last 10 years. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, the 10th Amendment Center is an organization based out of Los Angeles. It was founded in 2006. Uh, it is focused on constitutional originalism. And from an activism standpoint, we primarily engage in this thing called nullification, which is a, a fancy term for using state and local power to undermine and stop uh, unconstitutional overreaching federal authority. So uh, we use the states as a way to erode and degrade federal authority. The best example of nullification in modern day is the legalization of marijuana. Uh, 33 states right now have legalized medical marijuana. We have, I think, 11 states now that have completely legalized marijuana. And yet the federal government claims to maintain complete prohibition of marijuana. Well, uh, you know, I drive every day past a, uh, a a doctor who prescribes medical marijuana here in Florida. So, you know, to say that there's absolute prohibition is obviously false. And that's because states have effectively ignored the federal government. They've said, we're going to create our own policy on this issue. And 
and because the states are not enforcing it, the federal government can't enforce it. And this is a fact of our political system. The federal government relies on state and local power to do almost everything. Uh, it, re it requires federal or state and local assistance of personnel, uh, state and local money. When state and localities just quit doing what the federal government wants it to do, a lot of times things don't get done. So we use that truth and we use the structure of the Constitution to push measures forward that do things like legalize marijuana. And we take that 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 concept and that strategy and we apply it to all kinds of other issues. So you know, you can use that model to refuse to enforce federal gun control or to refuse to implement Obamacare or uh, to do things that create an environment where we can have uh, more sound money. So there's all kinds of things creatively that we can do at the state and local level to undermine federal power with the ultimate goal of decentralizing the system, uh, bringing back more autonomy to state governments and local governments. And then, of course, my ultimate goal would be to decentralize all the way down to the individual. Uh, I have a feeling that that'll never happen in my <laughs> lifetime, but that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, on, on that um, last point about localities and what they can do to nullify, I think I think that my city of Missoula, my college town of Missoula, actually, um, they consider themselves a sanctuary city, and not a lot of people know that. Um, so a lot of immigrants are, I guess you could say, protected here. So Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. That's a perfect example. And it's interesting because when you start talking about nullification, it's typically thought of as something that's conservative. It's, you know, it's from the right. And this is an example of the left using the very same principle. And right. it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same idea. The uh, state or the locality in the case of Missoula simply doesn't cooperate with enforcement of uh, federal immigration laws. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the Supreme Court has held consistently since 1842 that the federal government cannot force states or local governments to enforce federal law or implement federal programs. Uh, you know, the, the state can't go arrest a federal agent, not under the law. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad <laughs> idea. But, uh, you know, if you're just looking at purely the legal system, uh, that's not something that can be done. But the uh, federal government cannot make Missoula enforce immigration laws. Right. It's, it's something that the federal government has to do. The federal government can try to do it. The problem the federal government has is it doesn't have enough enforcement agents to do it. So right. uh, there you go, you know. And so, again – this whole sanctuary idea, we're starting to see it bubble up in Virginia and some other states in, in gun control. And it would work exactly the same way. You know, if, if the uh, local sheriff is not or the local police say we're not going to enforce, you know, federal gun control X. Truth of the matter is federal gun control X is really not going to get enforced. So yeah. it's a great tool. It's a great pragmatic strategy to expand liberty. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're one that's inclined to work within the system, I think there's no better strategy. I think it's a lot better than trying to, you know, get the right president elected because, uh, as, as Tom Woods always says, you know, no matter who you vote for, you always end up with John McCain. Um, <laughs> you know, and so the voting the bums out never really works. Suing in federal courts never works because, of course, the federal courts are part of the federal government and they almost always side with federal power. Uh, you know, petitioning your congressman isn't typically very effective unless you're a well-moneyed lobbyist. But you can do it at the state level. And I tell people this story a lot. I talked to a state representative in Kentucky. This has been a number of years ago. But he said, Mike, he said, I've gone through entire legislative sessions without hearing from a constituent on a specific bill. 
He said, if I ever got like 40 phone calls on one bill, he said, it would definitely have an impact on my vote and the way I looked at the particular issue because they just don't hear a lot. So when you put pressure on these state and local guys, uh, you have a lot more chance of being heard than you do by you know calling your congressman because they're absolutely going to ignore you again unless you've got multi-million dollars to give them in their campaign. And I don't know right. about you, but I ain't got that kind of money. So. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, so I, I want to get into your book now. Um, it's it's called The Constitution Owner's Manual, the real constitution the politicians don't want you to know about. And just kind of in regards to the point of nullification, can, can you kind of give the rundown of, um, I guess, federal supremacy or um, the idea, just just kind of the arguments that people would use against nullification? I know that there are, there are plenty of cases that when I talk to people about nullification, they point out, and I mean, they're good points, but with, with every negative, there seems to be a positive, so. Yeah. Well, the biggest problem is, and this is the reason I wrote this book, is most people don't have any earthly idea what the Constitution is actually supposed to mean. Most people get their view of the Constitution through, uh, you know, maybe a high school civics class, which basically teaches the federal supremacy model, uh, or they get it from court cases. And I actually did a little video this morning, and I made the point, if you ever want to know something about the Constitution, never, ever, ever ask a lawyer. Because, and this is true, lawyers know very little about the Constitution. They know a lot about constitutional law, but they don't know much about the original meaning of the Constitution. The original meaning of the Constitution is actually found in the ratification debates. Uh, This is where the people that supported the conversation, uh, the Constitution, they explained what it meant and it was on that basis that the constitution was ratified so it's you know the constitution is basically just a contract it's a legal document so all legal documents are interpreted based on what it was understood to mean at the time that it was adopted you can't have a living and breathing contract this is an absurdity you know you would never have a living breathing mortgage nobody would do that uh you know nobody would have a living breathing contract to have an addition built on their house where the uh contractor got to determine you know the extent of his powers and then one day he decides he's going to tear your house down and build a condo you know nobody nobody would accept that and yet people embrace this uh crazy idea of a living breathing constitution but you can actually go back to the ratification debates, and you can look at the various principles and the various provisions in the uh, Constitution, things like the General Welfare Clause, the Supremacy Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, and you can determine very easily how it was understood and and what it actually is supposed to mean. And most of the time, it doesn't mean what the lawyers are going to tell you that it means. Uh, You know, a perfect example is the Commerce Clause, which is one that is used for all kinds of regulations today. Uh, in the founding era, commerce didn't mean any economic activity, which is basically what it is now. Commerce literally meant trade. Uh, so movement of goods across a border. That's what the federal government has the power to regulate. It was never intended to regulate agriculture or wages or you know the wheat you grow in your backyard or any, any of those things. So if you simply understand what they meant by commerce, and it's very clear if you go back to the ratifying period, then you understand that the Commerce Clause is actually rather limited, not this expansive thing that we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as supremacy, you know that, that usually is the first argument that you get when you start talking about um, nullification or the relationship between the states and the federal government. They'll say, well, we have the supremacy clause and the federal government is supreme. And 
yes, there is a supremacy clause, but if you read it, it doesn't say the federal government can do whatever it wants. Mm -hmm. It says that when the federal government does something that is within the bounds of the Constitution, that that is the supreme law of the land. But if it does something that's outside of the bounds of the Constitution, that's not supreme. Uh, in fact, uh, Alexander Hamilton called that void. So, you know, it doesn't mean any old thing that the federal government wants to do. And really, to understand this, you kind of have to go back to the very beginning and understand that uh, it was the states, and it is still the states, that are the premier and primary entity in our political system. Uh, they are the political parties that make up the United States. Each state is a sovereign political entity, not the border of the state, not the land, but the people of the state. Uh, and actually, when the Constitution was first drafted, you know, at the top, it says, we the people. Uh, initially, it said, we the people, and it listed each state. So we the people of uh, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Georgia. It listed the, the states. And the reason that they took those states out uh, in the uh, final draft is because they didn't know which states would ratify. Right. And any state that had decided not to ratify wouldn't have been part of the union. Uh, so, you know, these are the kinds of things that I have in the book that, that folks can read. Uh, I've written it in, in, in kind of a popular way. You know, it's mm -hmm. not an academic book. I think people will enjoy it. It's not terribly long. But it really just lays out each of these provisions. And the people that are interested in it, they can go to uh, constitutionownersmanual.com, and it will take you to a page where uh, it gives a little bit of a brief introduction to the book, and then uh, you can purchase it from there. But I think it's extremely important because, like I said, most people don't understand the Constitution. Uh, and I think even, even really educated people that you would think, oh, well, he has to know because right. he went to law school. No, if you went to law school, I guarantee you he doesn't know anything about the Constitution <laughs> at all because they don't teach it. Yeah. So on that, on that point about states and um, actually ratifying the Constitution, I think a lot of people don't realize that parts of the Constitution that were put in here were actually, like the Bill of Rights, were, um, they were put in the Constitution because they actually feared that states wouldn't ratify the Constitution or they wouldn't join. Yeah. So part of the um, part of the reason that they even allowed the idea of nullification in the first part or secession at the beginning was because they believed that they could actually leave if they didn't follow their promises. But now we almost reject those as if the United States came before the individual states themselves. Yeah, it's it's almost like, you know, think of it like a marriage. The marriage doesn't come before the bride and groom. You have right. to have bride and groom first. <laughs> the right, bride exactly. and groom are the states. And the marriage is the product of the bride and the groom. And and obviously, you know, if you get married, you can get divorced. That that union can be broken up. And it's the same thing with the union of states. If a state can freely enter into a union, it can freely leave. It's, mm -hmm. it's really common sense. Uh, but we've been brainwashed by this whole... And really, it goes back to the Civil War. It goes back to Abraham Lincoln and this, and, you know, we say this stupid Pledge of Allegiance uh, every day when, you know, growing up, I pledge mm -hmm. allegiance to the flag and it's one nation indivisible. Uh, that was written by a socialist, incidentally. <laughs> and and that's not the structure of the country. And, and you know, it's really clear if you go back and look at the, uh, the ratifying debates and, and you look at what people like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and even Alexander Hamilton, who, you know, he lied a lot, 
during the ratification debates because he wanted to get the thing in place because he figured he could he could twist things when uh, once it was in place. But even right. him during the ratification debates made it very clear that the federal government was supposed to be limited, that uh, that it was a union of states, that the states were ratifying individually of their own accord. And, and all of these uh, all of these things follow. It's really not nearly as controversial as it people make it out to be. But right. again, we've been conditioned and indoctrinated, I, for lack of a better word, for uh, most of our lives to believe this what is effectively a lie. Yeah, so, um, I, I'm trying to break that down. Yeah, and I w- I would like to kind of talk about the controversy just because a lot of my listeners um, will be friends on Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, um, when when people do associate when when they think of the word um, secession or nullification, they often do think of slavery, like you said. And and one of the one of the points that actually, I I'm blessed to actually have had a civics teacher in high school who was a libertarian. He he showed me Tom wow. Woods. He showed he showed me you guys, and um, I'm so thankful for it. But uh, um, one of the points that he always says is like, okay, well imagine if Abraham Lincoln instead of being you know, instead of outlawing slavery across the entire union, what if he mandated it across the entire union? Um, would you be in favor of secession then? And I think that that is a, an extremely valid point. Yeah, you know, that was, you don't hear it as much anymore, but when I first started working with the Tenth Amendment Center like five years ago, that was, when, when Obama was president and everybody on the left hated the idea of uh, you know any type of resistance to the federal government because their guy was in charge. Uh, as soon as you brought it up, that would that was the thing that came up. You, you must be a racist. You're for slavery. As if anybody in 2020 is for slavery. It's right. absurd. But you know that's kind of the trope. That's you know we still hear it. You're you're a white supremacist or some garbage like that. But in the case of nullification, and and again, this is a piece of history that has fallen down the Orwellian memory hole. Uh, nullification was actually used by northern states in the 10 years leading up to the Civil War, and it was used by northern states to nullify the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was a horrible law that basically criminalized even helping a runaway slave. So you could be arrested and charged under federal law for giving a runaway slave a piece of bread. Right. Um, and. The northern states, they passed laws called personal liberty laws that resisted this. They made it more difficult for, for slaves to be uh, hauled off to the south. And, uh, you know, the, just to give you an idea of what this law was like, if I was a black person and I happened to be in Wisconsin and one of these slave catchers came up there and said, oh, you're Joe Blow and my uh, client owns you, they could just drag me off. And take me down, and I belong to Joe Blow now. I couldn't even testify on my own behalf. It was mm-hmm. illegal for me to offer testimony to prove that I was a free person. So they could lie, and it happened all the time. So you know the 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 weight of nullification actually is very positive. Where it kind of gets murky is that it is true that southern states used the concept in the 1960s to uh, push back against. Uh, the uh, civil rights acts, and that was a bad use of nullification, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but it's like a hammer. I, I use this analogy a lot. Uh, you know, if if I use a hammer to drive a nail, a hammer is a good thing. If I use a hammer to bludgeon you over the head, then the hammer is a bad thing. Right. But it's not the hammer's fault that I'm bludgeoning you over the head. Uh, so, you know, by and large, nullification has been used to protect free speech. It's been used to stop, uh, you know, 
conscripting people into the army. It's been used to protect runaway slaves. Uh, more recently, it's been used to uh, protect immigrants in sanctuary cities. So uh, by and large, it's been used in very positive ways. And you know, most of the time, if people are trying to call you a racist or trying to bring up those types of arguments, they're either ignorant or they're just intentionally trying to smear you in order to uh, make people ignore the validity of your points. You know, it's right. a rhetorical trick. And uh, it really annoys the fire out of me. It's it's hard to stick on me. I'm married to a black woman, so I make a really really bad racist. <laughs> but um, you know, people people will still throw that up there. But uh, if you know the history, then you can very easily counter these arguments. Right. Um, you mentioned the commerce clause is one of the parts of the Constitution that is abused most often. Um, could you um, tie this back to, and the idea of nullification and states' rights, back to the recent law that increased the minimum purchasing age for tobacco? I know a lot of people are really upset about that, even if they are not libertarians, if they're not conservatives. It's, yeah, this it's is, across all this parties. Is a, yeah, this is a perfect example of, of government run amok. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can debate whether or not vaping is, is good for you or bad for you or whether you should do it or not. But why is it some guy in Washington's D.C.'s business? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing that it just uh, it just blows my mind. Right. But from a just purely, you know, governmental structure standpoint, the federal government has absolutely no authority to regulate the age of uh, purchasing tobacco products or vaping products or or anything else for that matter. And again, it goes to this idea of the Commerce Clause. It has nothing to do with trade. Uh, so, you know, if, if somebody wants to open a vaping store in, in Montana and, uh, you know, get vaping products and sell them there, the, the federal government has absolutely no say in that, and it shouldn't. Now, you know, Montana has regulatory authority there, and you might have to fight those guys, but Again, I would rather fight Montana than fight Washington D.C. Right. And there, there's just again, the you have to kind of step back a second and say, why does it make sense? Why does anybody think it's a good idea for a bunch of bureaucrats that are, you know, I don't know how far Washington D.C. is from from uh, Missoula, but I, I guarantee you it's a long way. <laughs> um, you know, they're they're uh, they're almost a thousand miles away from me in Florida. Yeah. Uh, why should those guys have any say over uh, what products that you buy in Montana? It just doesn't make any sense. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because you can go all the way back to the, the founding era. Uh, even at that time, Thomas Jefferson said that the country was too big to be ruled by a single government in a single place. And, uh, you know, that was when the, the government or the United States was still relatively small. You know, it didn't go much beyond the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. Um and so today, we've again, we've got 320 million people. Uh, I think decentralization is absolutely the best path forward. And, and, you know, I'll even go as far as to say I wouldn't mind seeing some secession. I mean, uh, if California is really that upset with the rest of the country, why didn't California just break off? They can go their own way. They can do their own thing. They can have their progressive paradise and uh, leave the poor people in Alabama alone. Right. I don't see a problem with that. I, that seems like a, boor, a more peaceable and humane way to handle the situation rather than to fight over who gets control of Washington, D.C. So either Alabama gets to impose its will on California or vice versa. It just doesn't seem like a very good way to, uh, to uh, you know, 
have human affairs managed, uh, decentralize, localize, uh, and, and ultimately let people make their own decisions. Yeah, I, I want to ask you one more question on um, your book, but then I kind of want to get into the topic of religion um, and how that plays into all of this. But can you can you kind of speak on the Virginia and the Kentucky resolutions um, and what they have to do with all of this? Yeah, so these are some of these documents that uh, you probably haven't heard about unless you were fortunate like you to have a, a, an amazing teacher in, mm -hmm. in high school or something. Uh, I'll never forget the first time that I found these documents. So for people who don't know, the uh, Kentucky and Virginia resolutions were actually resolutions passed by the states of Kentucky and Virginia. Uh, the Kentucky resolutions were written uh, in secret at the time by Thomas Jefferson. And the Virginia resolutions were written by James Madison, and they were in response to four laws that were passed by the Congress and signed into law by President John Adams at the time. And uh, they were known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. And all four of them had constitutional issues. The Sedition Act was the worst of the four. It effectively criminalized free speech. Uh, and people sometimes are like, really? Yeah, absolutely. Look it up. Alien and Sedition Acts. So Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote these resolutions uh, basically addressing what are we going to do when the federal government so blatantly oversteps its constitutional authority. And they laid out the principles of nullification that we've been talking about. Uh, both of these documents explain in, in pretty easy to understand terms how the or how the union was formed and why the states are ultimately the sovereign powers in the system. I encourage anybody to Google Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798 and read them. Uh, it'll take you maybe 30 minutes to read both of them. They're not that long. I will never forget the first time that I read them. It was about 10 years ago when I first started working for the 10th Amendment Center. I was sitting on my couch and I, and I turned to my wife and I'm like, I can't believe I've never read this before. It just completely blew my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is such a clear – the Kentucky Resolutions in particular is probably the clearest explanation of the nature of the American Union as you will ever read. It's in the eloquence that only Thomas Jefferson can, can supply. And um, I actually put both of those documents at the end of the book because I think they're that important. I think they're probably two of the most important documents in, in our founding history and sadly – 90% of Americans have never even heard of them, much less read them. Right. Um, so, yeah, now I, I kind of wanted to talk about your religion and how this all plays into everything. Uh, you host the Godarchy podcast. Um, can you explain how you got to where you're at right now, um, your religion, your religious background, and then how everything played together to let you yeah, become so, who you are? Yeah, I've, so I, I became a Christian uh, when I was about 18 years old. So I, most of my life, I'm old now. <laughs> I'm in my fifties. And, um, but I was kind of, I was really your typical religious right. And, you know, younger folks probably aren't going to have a, as much of a frame of reference. Uh, it was a, a really big phenomenon in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, even going into the two thousands with you know, people like Jerry Falwell and, uh, even Ronald Reagan to some degree, but uh, it was it was a very political expression of evangelical Christianity. Uh, it was in effect we're going to impose our moral vision of Christianity on the United States, and 
you know, probably the biggest issue was abortion. And of course, that's still a hot, a hot topic. But, uh, you know, the drug war, I think the, the religious right really helped push the drug war along because we can't have drugs. You mm-hmm. know, drugs are immoral. Um, pornography, those types of things. And that was basically where I came from. I was your Rush Limbaugh listening. Uh, I don't think anybody listens to Rush Limbaugh anymore, but boomers. <laughs> but um, yeah, I used to listen to Rush. I embraced all of the wars. Um, you know, that, that was another big thing. And you still see that on the right uh, quite a bit, that neoconservatism that, uh, you know, we have to have aggressive foreign policy. We've got to get them over there before they get us here. Uh, I, I very much bought into that, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, so in my political evolution, I kind of got I kind of started moving toward liberty, uh, kind of through the Tea Party, believe it or not. Uh, this is where a lot of people will say, oh, I came in through the Ron Paul movement, but uh, I never really was – I didn't really get – understand much about Ron Paul until I was pretty immersed in this movement. But mm-hmm. uh, I kind of came in through the Tea Party, got involved with the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, I started uh, reading more economics, which I encourage everybody to do. Go get Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. That's a good starting point. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, because if you un- if you understand economics, a lot of the politics just falls into place. Yep. Um, but – as I kind of grew into a more libertarian mindset and ultimately progressing all the way to uh, anarcho-capitalism or voluntarism, however you want to label it, I, I really had to start to, to sit back and look at how does my faith and my politics, how do those two things interact? Because I was like a lot of American Christians where my faith was kind of in one box and my politics was in a box and you know my social life was in a box. And, and I realized if I'm really serious, if I'm really serious about being a follower of Christ, then I need to have all of these boxes need to be the same. You know, everything mm-hmm. needs to be integrated into a whole. And I really started to realize, you know, I have not been true to the teachings of Christ, especially in my support for all of these wars, because I just don't think that the the person that we call the Prince of Peace who talked about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, I don't think that he would be real gung-ho on bombing people thousands of miles away. Right. And so, you know, I really began to bring these things together. And so I started the uh, a website, godarchy.org, oh gosh, probably four years ago now. And then I started the podcast about a year ago, uh, maybe a little more than a year ago now. Um, really is a way to kind of explore these issues of politics and um, and and the church. Uh, and it's really directed at Christians. I mean, I, I have a lot of people that listen that aren't Christians, and I think that's pretty cool. I am not one that really is a – I don't push religion because I don't think I'm going to argue you into faith. Yeah. Uh, if, if people are interested, I'm happy to talk to them, but uh, I, I'm not – this isn't an, an evangel, uh, evangelical endeavor. It's really for Christians to kind of explore these ideas. Um, it's primarily it started really almost as much as anything as being an anti-war voice in Christendom mm-hmm. because it just absolutely drives me crazy the way so many Christians are so uh, quite to put it bluntly, they're just warmongers. And um, and so I just began to kind of flesh these things out and explore them in my own mind and then try to try to create a platform that that brings these two things together. And as I did that, you know, I realized that uh, this idea of voluntarism fits very nicely with the Christian faith. Um, You know, Jesus never, uh, he he doesn't compel us 
to follow him. You know, he didn't put a gun to our head. We have a choice. We can choose to follow him or not. Right. We can choose to uh, abide by his teachings or not. Um, and the early church in particular, that was the way the church spread. They didn't use uh, violence. Uh, they simply spread their message. And, and you can find these really early church writers, you know, in the first two or 300 years of, uh, after Christ was crucified, you can actually read where they talked about, you know, we don't compel. Um, and so, you know, you look at the, the whole idea of love your neighbor. That's basically voluntarism. You treat other people the way you want to be treated. You voluntarily interact with them uh, and, and you don't initiate force against other people. So I think the political philosophy and the religion fit together very nicely. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think you have to be a Christian to embrace voluntarism because I don't think you have to be a believer in a, uh, any kind of God to recognize that, you know, recognizing the autonomy of another person and not hitting them, uh, it probably makes good ethical and moral sense, you know, <laughs> whether, you come, whether you come at that from a theological standpoint or whether you uh, come at it from a mere philosophical standpoint. But, um, you know, it's kind of the Godarchy thing. It's kind of my, my heart passion. And, uh, and something that I feel kind of led and driven to do and very much enjoy it. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah. that's basically the, the long and short of it. Awesome. Well, um, I, I did want to talk about um, one of the points that is brought up among libertarians when they talk about uh, whether or not you can be a Christian and a libertarian. They often cite Matthew twenty two twenty one, 21, um, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, can you do you have an argument against that or what do you think about that passage? Well, I think that that was I think that there's a, a theological point that Jesus was making. And actually, there's an article that a friend of mine, Ryan Burgett, wrote about this on the Godarchy website. And I haven't looked at it in a while, and I probably would butcher his argument if I tried to, <laughs> to flesh it out. But and to try to put it in simple terms, you know, that whole that whole passage was about. The Pharisees trying to basically put Jesus in a in a no win situation. Right. Uh, he could either say, uh, "Don't pay the taxes to Caesar," in which case Rome was going to come after him, or he could say, "Pay the taxes to Caesar," and then the uh, the religious people would come after him because you know there was a uh, there was a strong anti Roman uh, politic that was going. It was a political question that they were asking. Right. So Jesus's answer, in essence, was a way to answer the question without really answering the question right. and, and to leave them stumped so that he could walk away and, and uh, you know, not end up getting uh, lynched by one mob or the other. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think if you look at it, you step back and look at it, well, what does belong to God? Well, really everything belongs to God, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that, that Caesar has any legitimate right to take my stuff any more than I think you have a legitimate right to take my stuff. Right. Um, and and I think that the, the overwhelming teaching of the Bible supports that position. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I do pay my taxes only because if I don't, somebody's going to come after me with a gun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there's a pragmatic aspect of this as well. But um, it's interesting because, and I never realized this until I really started studying it over the last couple of years, you know, there were a lot of politics intertwined in the Jewish conception of a Messiah. Mm -hmm. They believed that 
the Messiah was going to be another David, that he was basically going to be a kick-ass general that was going to come in and wipe Rome off the map and reestablish Israel to its glory. And, of course, that wasn't Jesus' mission at all. Right. Uh, and, and there were a, n- a number of cases. There was actually one where uh, I think it's in Matthew where specifically they say they were going to try to take, you know, force Jesus to be the king. Uh, and so he was wor- really trying hard to navigate this political, religious road so that he could do what he ultimately came to do, and that was to die, uh, to die on the cross for our, our sins and establish a kingdom not on uh, military might or the sword, but to establish it on love and and, uh, and grace and peace. So, um, yeah, that's a tricky, a tricky one, but uh, there are some good theological explanations that I don't yeah. really feel equipped right now to, to go into <laughs> real deep. But like I said, if you go to godarchy.org and just Google uh, render under Caesar, that article will pop up. And Ryan does a really good job of explaining the, the nuances of what was going on in that passage. Yeah, there's something um, – I had never heard that point before, but I really like it. There's something that I've been thinking about, and I wonder what, what you have to say about it. But um, I, I've always taken it to be that, like, well – as Christians, we should be peaceful. So if and um, give unto those who who basically ask for something, even if they're your enemies. So I've kind of taken it to like, yeah, I will pay my taxes. But then when you think when you think about what Jesus would ask you to do if you were in the position of Caesar, though, Caesar would probably he would probably ask Caesar not to take people's stuff. So I think I I think right. that there is kind of like, well, yeah, citizens they should be peaceful, but so should governments. And yeah. I think that it's very interesting that it does That's a really good point. I think I think that I think that you're onto something there. You know, it, it depends on which side of the of the proverbial coin you're looking at. Right. Yeah. Um and then lastly I, I are you you're still with Shift Gold, right? I am indeed. Um I kinda just wanted to talk about that. Um a lot of people they don't really I guess understand what, what's happening with the Federal Reserve and um I've had a lot of uh, problems trying to convince people around me that that gold is um, a safe haven. Can you kind of explain what's going on with the Federal Reserve and why people should be concerned about um, their purchasing power just be being taken away from them? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what is the Federal Reserve? First thing you have to understand is it's it's a central bank. It has a monopoly on our money. Uh, they hand out Federal Reserve notes, and they control the Federal Reserve notes. And in essence, what the what the Federal Reserve can do is print money. Now, it can't literally print money. There's not a printing press in the Eccles building, which is the, the main Fed building. But they effectively create money because they can write a check, and when they write a check, that money exists. So what they'll often do is, is they monetize the U.S. debt. They will buy U.S. Treasuries, the bonds, they write a check. That money now exists where it didn't before, and then they take the bonds in. So in essence, they put money into the system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, imagine if, if uh, I guess to put it in simple terms, uh, say you have two $1 bills, and those two $1 bills will buy one clam. All right, so let's say that you have a printing press and you print off two more $1 bills. So now you have four $1 bills, but there's still only one clam. Well, now that clam is worth $4 <laughs> because you've just inflated the money supply. You've devalued the money by twofold. Mm-hmm. And that's 
that in the simple terms is what the Federal Reserve does. It pumps all of this money. It creates it out of thin air and dumps it into the system. And as it does that, you have more dollars chasing basically the same amount of stuff. So the value of each individual dollar becomes less. And if you look at when the Federal Reserve was created, which was 1913, the dollar is now worth about 95% less than it was, or it's lost 90% of its value from then to now. So where this is so pernicious is the first people that get this money, they benefit from it. Once it once it works its way through the system, then everything kind of adjusts. You know, prices adjust. You you have higher prices, and then you have higher wages. But the prices tend to adjust first for the first people that have the money. So they basically get an advantage. This is one of the big. When you hear people talk about the one percent, the Federal Reserve has more to do with enabling the one percent than any kind of government policy that's out there because they're basically the ones that are in control of how the new money enters into the system, who gets that first dollar when it's created. Mm-hmm. Um, on, a, on a more economics, uh, on, on a broader spectrum, what the Federal Reserve does is it effectively uh, manipulates the interest rates. And we have exceptionally low interest rates right now uh, compared to what you would expect at this point in the, uh, in the cycle. So um, it's it's hard not to get way into the weeds with this mm-hmm. with this kind of stuff. But let's just let's just try to I'll try to make it as simple as possible. You have this thing; it's called a business cycle, boom bust cycle. Uh, you have crashes like we had in two thousand eight, or the dot com crash that we had in the uh, in two thousand, and then you have uh, recoveries, and it kind of goes in this up and down cycle. Well, the Federal Reserve is what pushes this cycle around along. So uh, back in Leading up to the 1990s, the Federal Reserve, they pushed interest rates really, really low. They dumped a bunch of money into the system. That makes it much easier to borrow money. When it's easy to borrow money, people borrow a lot of money for stupid ideas, and uh, you end up blowing up asset bubbles. So at that point, it was the dot-com bubble. People were borrowing money and creating these internet companies that uh, had no future at all, but they were able to sustain themselves because the interest rates were so low. Well, eventually those interest rates have to come up. And when that happens, the bubble pops and the economy crashes. Then the Federal Reserve repeats the cycle and each cycle gets worse. So after the dot-com bubble, they dropped interest rates again, flooded the uh, flooded the economy with easy money, and then we ended up with the housing boom. All that money went into housing. And then eventually interest rates started to come up. The, the Fed tried to normalize things. The housing bubble popped economy crashed. We had 2008 and the Great Recession. Well, we're now in basically at the top of that peak again. Federal government, uh, the Federal Reserve tried to raise interest rates uh, starting in about 2016. In 2018, or yeah, 2018, they got really aggressive with it. The stock market started to crash. And now the federal government has pushed interest rates all the way back down to like one point, I think we're at 1.25 percent. Normal around this time uh, in the last cycle was like 5%. So as you can see, it just gets steadily worse. And we've got this booming stock market, and that's a bubble. And it's going to pop, and it's going to crash, and a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. And uh, then we'll probably try to repeat the cycle again. But at some point, you dump all of this money into the system, you can end up with hyperinflation like they have in Venezuela. And uh, and then it gets really ugly for the economy. So I tell people all the time, everybody wants to give their president credit for the economy 
or they want to blame uh, the president they don't like for the bad economy. Presidents have a little bit to do with it. You know, uh, government policy does have some bearing on the economy, but by and large, it's what's going on at the Federal Reserve. Uh, if you follow along over at shiftgold.com slash news, uh, it's, it's a company that sells gold, but I write over there for their blog, and I do I spend a lot of time explaining uh, what's going on in the economy and how the Federal Reserve uh, is manipulating and operating. You have to understand this. It's, it's imperative if you really want to understand what's going on in the economy. Mm-hmm. And most people don't. And understandably, it's confusing, and nobody really wants to talk about banks. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's extremely important. And, and I can just say this, that we are at the top of the cycle. The Federal Reserve is engaging in extreme monetary policy all to, already. That bubble is going to pop, and we're going to see another economic crash uh, I would say sooner rather than later. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen before the next election. Yeah, um, one of the things that I've I've discovered is that the the government does have a monopoly on money, but they also have a monopoly basically on the definition of what money is as well. Because of that, That's right. um, it, it it seems like when when I talk to people about gold and stuff like that, they or Bitcoin, for instance, they talk about. Um, the volatility of it and not necessarily not necessarily the security of it um and they don't necessarily understand they kind they kind of look at it like stocks they want it to just keep going up rather than like right. um have something that has never been at zero um so I, I think that that's also another issue that has to be fought yeah and you know admittedly uh, bitcoin is is volatile in its yeah. price uh, and it's because it's a relatively new thing mm-hmm. and we're still figuring out how it's going to work and yeah. how people are going to ultimately use it, and and even what cryptocurrency will ultimately, you know, uh, win the market over. Right. The beautiful thing about it is, is we have a market, and and you can these these various technologies and various platforms can kind of fight it out and, and innovate and try to become what what is best. The beauty, the beautiful thing about cryptocurrency is the government can't control it. Right. Uh, you know, it's 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 um, it's kind of. It's secure, it's locked down, and it's very difficult for the government to get involved in it. And it allows you to uh, move money around without the government interfering. Gold's a little bit different. Gold is definitely not volatile. Mm -hmm. Um, Like anything, it goes up and down uh, to some degree. But if you look at it over time, especially since the Federal Reserve has uh, completely gone to a fiat money system where they can print money at will, uh, the, the value of gold has increasingly gone up, and it always will because it's relative to dollars. And so right. the more dollars that are out there, the more dollars a given ounce of gold is, is going to be worth. Right. So, uh, you know, you can go back to, uh, gosh, I think it was like, I don't remember the dates, but, you know, over the last couple of decades, gold has gone from $300, and uh, now we're at about, uh, I think we're around 1560, 1575. Um, at its peak in 2011, after the crash, it, it hit 1900. That's the the highest gold has ever been. But I mean, compare that to $300. Uh, gold is always going to at least keep up with inflation. That's why right. it's considered a hedge. It's considered wealth preserver. Uh, gold is always going to go up in times of of economic distress. Uh, good portfolio managers will tell you to keep at least 10% of your portfolio in gold. Uh, just simply because when stocks crash, when other commodities crash, 
gold is almost going to always going to go up. So it's, it's not volatile. It's, it's not going to make you a million dollars. You know, I mean, that's, it's true. You can buy a stock and, uh, you know, hold on to it for 10 years and it might be worth four or five times as much, uh, in 10 years. That's probably not going to happen with gold unless you're going through a, a really turbulent economic time. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of people that in 2008 lost everything they had because the stock market dropped like 50%. And I don't think you'll ever really see that happen with gold. So um, it's definitely a stable hedge. But the thing about gold as money is that you can't counterfeit it. You can't print it out of thin air. You can't devalue it. Uh, So it is a stable monetary system when it's based on gold. And it's not controlled by the government. And people don't understand that the, the fact that the government can effectively print money means that the pre- the government can fund all of these wars and all of this uh, debt spending and all of these things. It would never be possible without the Federal Reserve. You would not have the empire and the wars without the Federal Reserve. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Federal Reserve enables all of the government spending. And uh, again, they create a big bubble. And at some point, it's going to collapse. And at some point, uh, the dollar is not going to be the reserve currency anymore, and you're going to wish you had some gold because your dollar is not going to be worth a whole lot. So. Right. Well, well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, do you want to maybe just tell people where they can find you? I know we kind of did that throughout the interview, but um, just say some final words. And Well, I'll hit, the, I'll hit the highlights. The first place I always ask people to visit is 10thamendmentcenter.com, and you spell out 10th, and there you will see – uh, a lot more about the activism that we're doing. If you go to our blog, which is blog.10thamendmentcenter.com, uh, you'll see all of the various issues that we're working on, bills that we're tracking and, and pushing through state legislatures. Uh, you'll find the philosophy. You'll find uh, information about the original Constitution, uh, applying it to uh, issues of the day. That's the first stop I ask people to make. If you're interested in this uh, type of thing, study it. See if it's something you're interested in. We always are excited when people become members of the 10th Amendment Center, and you can do that for as little as two bucks a month, which just about anybody can afford two bucks a month, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so 10thamendmentcenter.com first. Uh, you can check out my website at michaelmeharry.com, which is just my name spelled out. Um, and I have my uh, I have a podcast over there called Thoughts from Meharry Head. I do it every other week. It's just a 10-minute podcast where – uh, generally, I rant about some political issue. <laughs> tends to be tends to be what happens there. Uh, you can also find information about uh, my new book and also the uh, the first book that I wrote, which is called Our Last Hope, uh, which is the philosophical, historical, and constitutional case for nullification. Uh, all that information's on on that website. Also, articles. I don't write as much uh, over there as I used to, but um, there are articles there. If you're interested in the uh, the Christian aspect of uh, my thinking, you can go to godarchy.org. And then uh, for folks that are interested in investing in finance and uh, those type of things, shiftgold.com uh, slash news is the kind of the blog part of the website where I write a couple of articles every day, which again, usually cover current economic and financial news as it relates to precious metals. So I'm all over the place. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. It's uh, it's great to great to be on, and uh, yeah, appreciate All right. it. Well, I'll talk to you later, Mike. All right, excellent.